I'm Alex Marlowe, Editor-in-Chief of Breitbart News, and this is the Breitbart News Daily Podcast. I begin the show with a bit of good news. Republicans are starting to fight back against the woke left in certain states. And in fact, it actually goes beyond fighting back. It's setting their own conservative agenda. It's commendable. Thus, I commend them. But the good news mostly ends there. The country's obsession with race and gender continues to know no bounds. I give you the latest examples, which are beyond parody. I also report more scary details of Joe Biden's open borders policy that's emerging, and I break down the surreal scenes at Barack Obama's trip to the White House yesterday. And I remind you all that Twitter is indeed still a horrible place. Maybe Elon Musk will fix it, but I'm not holding my breath. Our guest today is financial futurist Jeff Brown, who is a clear vision of the globalist Davos threat to your way of life and your wallet. And he gives you some proactive ways that you can hedge against the Great Reset. And we have our call of the day. But first, a word from our sponsors. Let's start today with a story that I would like to call uh, the gender obsession that's going on right now. And there's also a racial obsession, too. But the Biden is planning now to make Title IX, to make a, a Title IX plan that would really essentially kill women's sports, um, at least according to the way Betsy DeVos has framed it in a New York Post article and not not my favorite of the Trump cabinet members, but I think understands this issue pretty well. Uh, But it just is a a deep connection to all this trans badness that we're seeing right now where we are making all sorts of excuses for people grooming children into this sort of cult that's emerged, this LGBTQIA ampersand pregnant man emoji cult that we've seen. Uh, and where we have to talk about race and gender and uh, particularly gender and sexual orientation all day, every day. It seems like this is the the only topic now that we're allowed to spend a lot of time on. And it is a one story after the next after the next that came up uh, over the last 24 hours of Breitbart. You, th- you think this stuff would calm down. Becoming a transgender is a sacred journey, according to a UK bishop. Peter Cattle writes for us about how uh, the a, a UK one UK bishop has demanded that the government implement a ban on trans conversion therapy, and because it is a sacred a journey. So of course people know what conversion therapy is, where people try to get uh, them to not be a homosexual or not be a trans person. Um, but and you know there's a lot of people going to be mixed on that. I get it. I, I even understand why people wouldn't want it to exist. I understand that. Though I, there's no doubt, of course, it's probably worked a lot of times. But I understand why people wouldn't like it. But to go as far as to say it's sacred, it's like Joe Biden saying trans are made in the image of God, which is sort of a, a absurd statement, considering everyone's made in the image of God. But their transness, I don't know if that's something that you know God decided you shall be trans. You shall be the trans. Is, is that my God voice? I guess it is. But it is um, nonstop, nonstop, constant. Um, the There is, though, some pushback that's taking place, and I welcome this. 
Um, Ohio is uh, is is pushing for a don't say gay bill, which is not a don't say gay bill. Of course, I'm using the left's language because that's what it's been uh, dubbed in pop culture. And if you look back on the origins of that term, that term is really comes from Planned Parenthood, by the way. So it's with Planned Parenthood uh, dictating the way we frame all of our news. But this is a bill that would uh, make it so that the schools do not talk sexual orientation with the youngest students among us. That's it. All it does. So uh, this is also the bill would uh, outlaw the promotion of divisive concepts like critical race theory in the 1619 Project. So we have to do this stuff now. And I'm not a, uh, I'm, I'm a free speech guy. And I think technically I would love it if we could trust the schools to kind of teach what they want and then um, let the free market decide. But a lot of these kids are captive. They're, there's no other option for them. They have to go to public school. And if public school is teaching 1619, which is false, then I, this is not one of the free markets just going to solve it. You can't all, not everyone can afford to put their kids in private school. And that's not just even have to do with you know, rich versus poor. There are some areas where it's just it's totally unaffordable, especially if you have a bunch of kids. I was thinking about this for myself personally because, you know, we have a lot of family members um, in parts of the country that are that are wealthier parts of the country. And if I have three kids, if I have four kids, you know how much money I'm going to have to make to put them in a, a big city private school? It's a, it would be a, a fortune. It would completely dwarf whatever mortgage is. And it wouldn't even be close. So it might not be an option for people. So what are you supposed to do? You're supposed to just sit there and say, hey, I, you know what? We're going to have to do CRT and uh, all the trans stuff. So Lieutenant Governor Dan Patrick of Texas says to Disney, I will make a version of Florida's parental rights and education law a top priority for Texas. So uh, we have to do this stuff. You have to fight back. You have to fight fire with fire. It will become incredibly popular. Oklahoma's lawmakers are voting to ban abortion and even imprison doctors. Uh, if Roe v. Wade were to go away, just remember, what uh, Roe v. Wade would do is it would send the abortion laws back to the states. So obviously this is a play to get onto the Supreme Court's radar because I don't see how this could stand up um, to Roe v. Wade. But again, the Supreme Court narrowly is a, seems like a pro-life court. Um, you know, it's hard to imagine Chief Justice John Roberts uh, overturning Roe v. Wade. It's just hard for him, it's hard to imagine that. But even the sort of more moderate-leaning new conservative judges seem to be pretty much cross-the-board pro-life, as far as we know. We don't know for sure because, again, if you're openly uh, saying that I want to ban abortions, you're not going to get through in, in any sort of a narrow setting in terms of confirmation. So we don't really know for sure how they would, uh, how they would interpret the law. But, you know, on a personal level, you would think all the new Catholics on the court, they'd consider it perhaps the right bill. So this is obviously a backlash to the nonstop trans talk that we're having every single second of every single day that we must do. Everything must be trans. Everything must be uh, whether race, gender, sexual orientation. Frito-Lay introduces Cracker Jill to honor women's sports. This is one where I saw the headline and I immediately clicked on it to make sure it wasn't from April the 1st, which it was not. It was from April the 5th. 
Pour out your Cracker Jacks and make way for Cracker Jill, a new mascot for Frito-Lay to honor women's sports, according to Paul Bois uh, at Breitbart News. And the statement that comes with it, we are constantly inspired by many women who are making history by breaking the mold and we want to celebrate their achievements while supporting the progress. Tina Mahal, Vice President of Marketing of Frito-Lay North America says, Cracker Jack has been a part of sports for over a century. As records were made and rules changed, we've been so inspired by how girls and women are changing the face of the game. So in this spirit, we introduce Cracker Jill to show girls that they're represented even in our most iconic snacks. So girls are not represented by a sugary popcorn and peanuts. Just know that. What message does that send to girls? Like for all these years, you've been hoodwinked. You've been eating these uh, uh, gender binary snacks that are part of the patriarchy. We smash the patriarchy with new junk food. If, if your girl is in her life cares about this, I think that you probably need to spend some time with some quality time with her and make sure everything in her life is okay. She's motivated by Cracker Jill. Boy, that's empowering. Um, it is interesting to see that Frito-Lay, though, is run by biologists. Who's to say even what's a woman anymore? I'm struck by that. No wonder some of their stuff is so good. I have to admit, the Frito-Lay products, there's a lot of good ones. I don't consume a lot of them, which is perhaps why I'm uh, pausing the show. We have a lot of news to update you on to talk about Frito-Lay products. But uh, back when I used to like kid food, I, I would gravitate towards the Frito-Lay product line. The hot Cheetos are unbelievable. They really are. They're not from planet Earth. They're one of those foods that they're just not from this planet. They're from a different planet, a planet where there's some weird but somewhat delicious foods, like like the center of the Oreo. Like, oh, what is that? There's no dairy in it. Still tastes good, though. Um, Oreo, did, did they go woke? They must have at some point. I hope not. I'll tell you, that the, the uh, absolute, absolute... Uh, bold, brave individuals to come with all the flavors they got going with the Oreos, though, these days. All right, that, 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 that's enough junk food talk. But you guys see my point. Now, Frito-Lay is doing this pandering, too. But in a way, is this pandering enough? Because this does not include the trans. The trans are disenfranchised by this. So the trans are not represented when it comes to the Frito-Lay cracker gel. So what do you call a person who hasn't decided Maybe they haven't decided what their, uh, maybe they haven't decided what uh, gender they are, they are, what their sexual orientation is. Maybe what's Cracker Jack's marketed to? 11-year-olds, 12-year-olds? How have they decided? They haven't decided what their gender is. They're not biologists yet. So you can't be a biologist at 11. So how do you even know what you are? Uh, I'm only being somewhat tongue-in-cheek because this is the direction of the conversation that we're going. And I bring this to my big question of the day, and I do want to get your responses at 866-95-PATRIOT on this. Our lead story of Breitbart News right now is in, uh, the, I'll read you the headline, Where's Musk? Trump, Carlson, Kirk, Babylon B still locked out of Twitter. Trans hysteria over free speech. And then I threw in there at the end, Trump is still permanently suspended. So Trump's a little different case because, of course, Trump's uh, 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 suspension is for a different issue, which I'll come back to that in a moment. But Charlie Kirk, Babylon B, which is a satire site, Tucker Carlson, are all locked out of Twitter because they tweeted that Admiral Rachel Levine, who is a man, is a man. 
in whether it be in joke form or serious form or a, a country that used to value you know freedom of speech. Um, one of the biggest town squares that we got, Twitter, has banned people for saying a guy who lived almost all of his life as a guy and is clearly a guy, but lives his life now currently as a woman. Uh, it, it, it is not allowable. And so Musk gets in there, so he's got 9.2% shares, which is the most shares. He hasn't done anything yet. Now, I, I, there's a little trolliness to this, I will admit. I, I can't say I expected Musk to be able to reverse this right away. But um, he's got to get this done, especially with the right giving him just endless amounts of free press these days, despite his deep ties to China and his deep ties to the U.S. government. Uh, his wealth is derived more from his uh, entrepreneurship in terms of getting CCP cash and American government cash than it is from some sort of genius um, ability to invent. So it's the, I'm not saying that he isn't a bright guy and hasn't done some stuff that's productive. I'm, I'm, I'm not going that far, but I'm saying he got to be the richest man on earth and have the ability to buy 9% of Twitter just because he feels like it uh, because he has been able to leverage deep connections to the biggest governments on the planet. That's how he's done it. So I'm skeptical that he's going to be able to reverse these bans or these anti-speech rules. So I'm making him on a little bit on the front page, but it is striking that you can't tweet as Carlson and Charlie Kirk and Babylon B have done that this man is a man without getting thrown off Twitter. And that is, uh, this has got to be a big moment. Just a friendly reminder, it's been weeks, weeks, of these people locked out. And the outcry just dies down. This is how the cancel mob deals with it. This is how the people at Twitter deal with it. They know there's some, there's some people who are going to be upset. <clears throat> they'll be upset for a moment and then eventually they'll move on the left continues to take territory and they will never stop unless people push back on them, which is why I'm heartened to see Ohio, Oklahoma, Texas, places trying to get creative. Of course, Florida is always always the best on this. Trying to get creative when they've got the power to try to push people to move, have a, a positive agenda, not just play defense all the time. Because the left is always ratcheting up. Uh, I mentioned I was going to bring back Trump up again, who, of course, should be allowed on Twitter. But one thing that's interesting is that assuming Trump runs for president, which it definitely looks like he's going to at this point, uh, YouTube has removed an interview with Donald Trump for violating election misinformation policy with Ronna McDaniel. Um, Ronna Romney McDaniel. She, she kind of ditched the, the middle name. I got to admit, I don't blame her, RNC chairwoman. I'm not sure the Romney brand is as strong as it once was for people who cut checks for Republicans. Is, is that something we can agree on? Is that an opinion that's really a fact? I think that's an opinion that's actually a fact right there. The Romney brand not as strong these days with the people who cut checks to Republicans. Anyway, Romney, uh, Ronda McDaniel had a YouTube uh, video with Trump and talking about um, the election, as he often does, and there's, of course, billions of views and probably millions, if not thousands and thousands of videos of uh, f coverage of the 2016 election that suggests that it was illegitimate. That, that all exists. But any discussion of the 2020 election where Trump says there was voter fraud and uh, there was, um, uh, you know, it was a rigged election is been removed by YouTube. So here's my question. If Trump runs for president, what is YouTube going to do? 
What is Twitter going to do? Because if you have a candidate for president of the United States from one of the two major political parties who is not allowed time on these platforms, maybe that is going to be the big moment. Maybe that is going to be the moment where eventually there's going to be some sort of a federal election commission violation. Recall the Citizens United case where, you know, you can't make documentaries about candidates without it counting as a political contribution. Um, so, or can you? Depends on the circumstances. There's ways to work around things. So how is it going to be if the social media platforms have a candidate on and one candidate off? How's it going to go? So there's two parts to this. The first one is, what do you guys think? Do you think Musk, Musk is going to be able to figure this out? Make Twitter free, a free speech place once again, which it kind of was before. Or do you think it's just all some sort of a big joke or about his bottom line only and uh, people have their hopes way too high? And the other portion of this is uh, what is going to happen with the censorship of Trump if Trump runs? The second he declares for president, does this become a much bigger issue that YouTube and Twitter won't let him on? And have they thought this through? They must have, right? One other thing that's exciting that is uh, tangentially related, Kenosha has elected a Republican executive after a decade of Democrats. Recall Kenosha is where uh, the riots that led to the Kyle Rittenhouse shootings um, took place in Wisconsin. And obviously it had descended to total madness under Democrat rule, which it had four decades. And now Samantha Kirkman defeated Rebecca Matoska Mentink in Tuesday's spring election to become the county executive. It's pretty cool. All of this about violence and all these headlines about violence and the breakdown of law and order, the breakdown of society, and Republicans get a victory. And that's a good thing. It's, it's another example of one of these ones where the fight back is real. Here's another example of why Republicans have a, a, the really the upper hand in a lot of these races, even some of these races with cities, maybe not major cities, but definitely medium-sized cities for sure. You're going to start seeing Republican victories in some places. The man, a man arrested in connection to the Sacramento shooting, which took place over the weekend. I don't like to obsess on these on the show because when they're mass shooting situations, I do find the media does egg on the mass shooters and would-be mass shooters. Um, though I, I, I did watch after the shooting, a lot of the usual suspects call for gun controls that were already in place because they were in Sacramento, California, where California is just loaded with gun laws. And the capital of the state, of course, has tons of gun laws. But a man in, arrested in connection to the shooting was released early from prison despite DA opposition. So even a DA who didn't want him to be released, and he was. Smiley Martin he does not look too smiley on his uh, mugshot. Maybe that's the maybe that's ironic. The second of three suspects arrested in connection with Sunday's Sacramento shooting was released early from prison in February. Wow, he's only been out for a month and a half. I'm shocked. Despite District Attorney Anne Marie Schubert's opposition to the release. According to Sacramento B, he was charged with assault with a deadly weapon and possession of a firearm by a prohibited person. Martin's gun had been had had allegedly been stolen, according to the LA Times, and it was converted into a fully automatic weapon, which of course is beyond illegal in LA. So he's going to face charges for that stuff. He was convicted in 2008 and received a 10-year sentence, but was, was released early from prison. 
So he, according to the DA, said for his entire adult life, displayed a pattern of criminal behavior. And even though he his most recent sentence was not violent, his criminal conduct in the past had been violent and lengthy. He committed several felony violations, according to the DA, Schubert, and clearly has little regard for human life and the law, which can be shown by his conduct in prior felony convictions. And she goes on to list a bunch of them, including assaulting a police officer. I'm sorry, the false information about a police officer. Little regard for human life. And got out of a 10-year sentence after four years or less. And then goes and is involved in the shooting a month and a half later. That's what I'm saying. Not good. All right, more sex obsession and gender obsession. Ellie Mistel, who is a clownish figure who shows up on MSNBC, says the GOP's pedophilia tactic and Tanji Brown-Jackson designed to put her life in danger. Just remember this, folks. Left-wing violence is protected speech. Right-wing speech is considered violence. So those of us who don't think someone who had a, every single time she had the chance, under-sentenced people who were child sex predators, uh, us bringing that up, that is about putting her life in danger. We're being violent against her. Of course not. We just don't want her to be in the Supreme Court. There's nothing violent about saying this person should not be among the nine most important judges in the land. Hope she's a very nice life. And uh, maybe she can have a, a law practice. Maybe she can have a, a, a side hustle where she is a, a boutique or a bakery. She do whatever she wants, as far as I'm concerned. Maybe she's a great upstanding member of her uh, community, but she should not be a judge. Uh, she's not, she should not be a judge, and she should certainly not be on the Supreme Court. Yet, uh, that does not stop Republicans from advancing her nomination. Yeah, I just find this be very, very disturbing, the obsession with the race and with the gender, and it's getting younger and younger. We want this for younger people as well, which is just not, not, not healthy. All right, a couple other things I'll mention on immigration. Republicans are noting that the they're bracing for the biggest migration crisis in U.S. history with Title 42 coming, and even some Democrats agree with them. Yet this is not slowing down the policies of the Biden administration to flood the country. And Alejandro Mayorkas, the Department of Homeland Security Secretary, is pushing for something that's known as backlog amnesty for over a million illegal aliens facing deportation. So there is a uh, for there there is a plan for a no deportation amnesty for 1.7 million illegals who are waiting in the courtroom backlogs. Even as officials, Neil Monroe writes for us at Breitbart News, are preparing to welcome many hundreds of thousands more. So there's all these illegal aliens coming, and they're basically nullifying immigration laws. They're on, they're on the books. Then you get dispensation. We're still digging into the plan that Biden has to deal with migration, and they're trying to about triple uh, economic um, support for Central American countries. We've given $1.5 billion to countries since 2014 in the Western Hemisphere to prop up their economies that will hopefully lead to less economic migration. It's not something that's totally implausible to me, but the problem is it depends on the money actually being spent properly. Which, who's to say it will in all these countries? Probably won't. 
and who's to say we'll pick the right number? And that number always goes up, as it will be here, so more billions of dollars that will go to Central American economies, and who's to say it'll, it'll make a difference? And why is the solution always spending more of your money and my money? That is apparently the only solution that's done. Everything has a solution, according to Democrats, that involves spending money. It just seems like it. Is there an example? Do they have an example of a problem that can't be solved with more money? It does seem like that is the plan always. And I think they've lost a little bit of credibility there. Uh, speaking of the guys who spent a lot of money, uh, Barack Obama went to the White House and referred to Joe Biden as the vice president and everyone laughed. There's a surreal vi a video that's going around where all of these Democrats swarming Obama and ignoring Joe Biden. Obama gave a speech where he mentioned himself 33 times. It's just a pep rally. There's nothing else going on there. There's just nothing happening. Obama didn't give any ideas that will make people feel like Joe, Big Joey's got a plan. He's got no plan. But he just showed up and we're, spent a day talking about that. And the media gets to talk about their favorite guy. And then Obama will go back to one of his houses and play video games, I guess. I, I don't. If you know what the point of that visit was, please tell me because I don't get it. A Durham filing that was reported via Just the News, John Solomon's website, said the text messages implicate the Hillary Clinton campaign in conspiracy. Now, very juicy, and a lot of people want this to be a smoking gun. But wasn't Hillary always involved? This is the big question. If this develops, we'll, we'll reach out to John, get him on. But the, a lot of people in the internet were very excited about this. And if you were excited about this, again, I invite you to call in and tell me why you were excited. Um, but this was involved, Joel Pollack reports for us at Breitbart News, uh, evidence that Michael Sussman, a lawyer for Hillary, the Hillary Clinton campaign, misled the FBI were reporting claims about candidate Donald Trump and Russia. And the text messages that are being described as the smoking gun appear to be written corroboration of charges against Sussman Furthermore, evidence in Durham's filing also implicates the Clinton campaign in the conspiracy. There's a quote that people are citing. I'm coming on my own, not on behalf of a client or company, want to help the Bureau. Thanks, Sussman says. And this is, um, I guess, the first time that Hillary Clinton, I guess, perhaps there's discussion that there could be an indictment. But again, she's always been involved. This always ties back to Hillary also. So I, I admit, I'm not get quite as excited yet. Maybe this is more back to Durham, the, the Durham of old, where I was very skeptical that Durham was doing a great job. Now everyone thinks Durham's doing a great job. So for years, we were, you know, remember, where's Durham? Where is John Durham? A lot of jokes on the show about where Durham is. This seems more of the... Uh, stuff to chit chat about, but not necessarily moving the ball, but we'll see. Uh, and then the last one I will bring up before we go to the phones is we're continuing to try to investigate Hunter Biden's Malibu home. It's becoming even more obsessed with Hunter Biden than before. Biden's renting a home in Malibu that costs $20,000 a month and Secret Service is paying $30,000 a month to rent the adjacent home next to it. So it's down a private road it's hard to see where it is. Beautiful part of the world. I, I absolutely love Malibu. And Joel Pollack lives out there. He lives uh, nearby in Santa Monica. He went over there, tried to figure out what's going on. And um, he got some footage of the private road. That's about it.
What a charm life off of your money. That's what people have got a good. And not to mention all that sweet, sweet commie cash. By the way, Hollywood is uh, doesn't want to release movies in Russia. But they still want to release movies in China. Add that to the list of backwards ideas that we got going. Jeff Brown is on the broadcast from Brownstone Research, and Jeff has been a sponsor of the program, but I do like to check in with him when it comes to issues of globalism, the Great Reset, and he's one of these guys who's I think, has a clear understanding of MAGA's place in the world, and not just in the United States, but as sort of a global phenomenon and as a way to push back against this oligarchic class that is emerging from Davos and Klaus Schwab in the Great Reset that we all talk about, but we also get into a little bit of granularity about what you can do over the next few years, not just in terms of political activism, but in terms of your wealth management. All that's really interesting and definitely a perspective you don't always get. And that's why he's our guest for today. Jeff, thanks for joining me. Thanks, Alice. Good morning. Uh, Let's start with this concept. Why the great recalibration and not the great reset in terms of branding? Well, you know, of course, when I um, am looking at the world, uh, in particular from a macroeconomic and a technological perspective and incorporating all of these incredible advancements that we've had over the last few decades with technology and um, things like robotics and artificial intelligence, I'm really um, thinking about these major tectonic shifts uh, in terms of um, how we uh, produce goods and services. And of course, over the last three or four decades, uh, the world, and uh, at least the developed world, certainly the United States, you know, spent an an immense amount of uh, time and investment shifting manufacturing and production offshore. Of course, that was primarily to mainland China and places in uh, Southeast Asia. And uh, that really was a catalyst to to feed globalization and, uh, of course, um, uh, bring developing countries into the developed world. And it worked great. Uh, it works great when the world's at peace and uh, everybody's uh, <laughs> friendly with one another. But uh, as we learned during the pandemic, um, things can fall apart really quickly. And uh, executives, uh, technology executives in particular, those in the manufacturing industry, ha- have seen the, the, the lack of resiliency in terms of supply chain um, supply chains for years. And um, really what started back in 2010 uh, was a very intentional movement uh, of reshoring, of bringing things back uh, onto U.S. soil, um, breaking down this centralized manufacturing model, and uh, once again making this massive shift towards decentralizing it to make it more resilient. And um, this was all enabled, uh, of course, by all these advancements in technology, which made it affordable to do so. I want to ask about what of the current slate of supply chain issues that we're facing you're most disturbed by, because now we don't just have 
this uh, we can't get chips uh gas prices are through the roof but we also are now on the verge of perhaps food shortages which is becoming a mainstream talking point something that would have been unthinkable and we all would have i think been lighting ourselves on fire if this was the conversation two years ago uh, but it's here now apparently what disturbed you the most and is there what what do you think is uh, i, I want to look forward to uh, can it be resolved in short order uh, if we're talking about a period of months, no, it cannot be resolved in short order. This is a, the frightening part about it. We, when we think about something like semiconductors, these are multi-billion dollar manufacturing plants, um, massive clean rooms that take years to manufacture uh, and bring to full production. Um, now, there's been a tremendous amount of investment over the course of the last decade, but the really big shifts have only been announced uh, really in the last um, two years where this supply chain issue um, amidst what was um, pre-pandemic an extraordinarily strong economic environment um, uh, we still have to continue to build so that's that's a multi-year um, process um, at the beginning of the pandemic, one of the biggest concerns that I saw in supply chain was was really the lack of raw materials for the production of medicine. Um, you know, there were shortages for basic things like um, uh, compounds used for antibiotics. Uh, if you think about medicines for um, insulin, uh, the uh, uh, we think about just not being able to get the basic medicines that we need to stay alive and stay healthy, um, that, was, uh, that was frightening, um, especially early on. And now, uh, obviously, things have evolved um, to um, even more fundamental issues. We have a shortage in, uh, in the wafers upon which semiconductors are built right now. We have uh, chemical shortages. Um, uh, the latest um, outbreak in Eastern Europe uh, as we know, has caused uh, shortages in fertilizers. So um, that's one of the things I'm most concerned about. If I look just into the fall, we're under fertilizing crops, which will reduce yields. We've seen uh, countries around the world um, stop exporting their food products because they know the shortages are coming, so they have to keep their food production on shore. And when we underplant our fields, when we underfertilize um the, the knock-on, the secondary effects are uh, become even more uh, more severe. Um, so there are, um, you know, it's it's really across the board uh, in terms of um, our supply chain problems right now. Is do you see a silver lining in terms of manufacturing coming back to the U.S.? There's at least more discussion of this. I, I think uh, Donald Trump wanted this. Uh, just as an, on an ideological level, and I think Biden is getting pushed in this direction to some degree because of just how vulnerable it's clear that we are. Do you see this as a positive development in a way? I, a hundred percent. I think it's it's a fantastic development. In fact, um, the the whole foreign direct investment and reshoring, while it started from my perspective in 2010, it really kicked into high gear in 2016. And that's when President Trump obviously took office. And uh, he had put in place some very strong economic incentives for companies to bring manufacturing uh, back on shore, both for U.S. companies as well as those who are operating in the United States. 
And so we had four years, four record years back-to-back where companies were literally bringing manufacturing back on shore. Of course, that means more uh, jobs in the United States. That means a stronger, more resilient supply chain. And um, that has certainly continued, not because of government incentives uh, since 2001, but it's, it's now happening out of sheer necessity. Uh, and um, it was eventually going to happen, but this whole pandemic uh, has certainly acted as a catalyst to accelerate that trend. The reality is, is that for most products that can be manufactured, um, uh, uh, they can be manufactured onshore in the United States in a way that is far better for our environment um, uh, at a cost that is on par with anything that can be done uh, in Asia. As long as you're using these advanced automation technologies, robotics and artificial intelligence, the labor costs have increased so much in Asia, and of course the technology has advanced that kind of the competitiveness on a total cost of, of manufacturing is is very similar now. So there's there's no reason not to make that step to a more uh, decentralized um, manufacturing model. And that's the great recalibration that, that I'm really uh, yeah. referring to. Jeff Brown, again, is with me, founder and chief investment analyst for Brownstone Research. You can go to brownstoneresearch.com and also jeffbrownreset.com. Uh, Jeff has been a sponsor of the show in the past and is also a uh, someone that I turn to when I'm trying to look at what's happening next. He's got an incredible track record of this and saw the Great Reset uh, coming. He took it seriously, not as some sort of a conspiracy that uh, was being discussed in the fringes, but as something that was going to go mainstream very quickly, uh, coming from Klaus Schwab and the World Economic Forum in Davos. But it also has other names, Jeff. Uh, I, one might submit Build Back Better and the Green New Deal, all of a lot of commonalities with the Great Reset. Uh, what do you think of that? Um. Well, there, there are certainly, um, uh, and I would say in a very frightening way, very intertwined with each other. Um, the, the, the one that has me even more concerned um, is this concept um, of, of transhumanism, mm. which um, uh, in the World Economic Forum have, has been discussed widely, uh, which is really referring to um, uh, the the uh, genetic modification, genetic editing of our DNA on a large scale uh, with the explicit purpose to um, monitor what's happening both inside of our bodies but also to obviously elicit certain traits uh, in our own character or physiology and um, What's frightening is that this is actually a very real and intentional discussion that's happening uh, associated with this with this uh, great reset. Um, and uh, obviously, um, <laughs> you know, the privacy of our own uh, of our own health and uh, our ability to make our own decisions um, concerning our own health are uh, important to I think most most individuals. Uh, but the sheer fact that these um, uh, these organizations are openly discussing and talking about uh, the use of this kind of technology to affect behavioral changes uh, is, is really frightening to me. 
I, Jeff, I want to ask you about the inflation numbers, or as we refer to it as the Biden inflation at Breitbart, but I don't need you to get political on it. That's totally up to you. Uh, but the, the, the it's very scary, and the gas is the one that clearly comes to mind first. But again, we're seeing food prices escalate. Are there is there anything that is you're particularly concerned about, and do you have any hedges that you would recommend to people against some of it? Yeah, so um, this, you know, inflation is a monetary phenomenon. Um, you're exactly right. This is um, entirely the result of uh, of Biden's monetary policies. Um, you know, what have we seen in the last 15 months? Roughly five trillion dollars worth of of printing, uh, an extraordinary number by any account. Um, I mean, I remember in the, um, the eight years of the Obama administration, it was about $10 trillion um, printed during that time. But what was interesting um, is that during that, during that period, you know, we've always thought of, we've always thought of gold as, as being that safe haven. Um, and some very smart people and analysts over the years had said, if something like that ever happened, you know, gold would have gone to $10,000 an ounce or more. Well, I remember during the Obama administration, you know, we only saw gold go up to, you know, $1,700, $1,800 an ounce. That was it. That's all we got out of it. And here we've had $5 trillion worth of printing and stimulus. And, um, you know, gold has barely gone above that. Uh, and so um, I hate to say this because I was a big fan of gold and a big investor of gold in the early 2000s up through the Obama years. It was a great, great investment for that period, but uh, I just don't see that being as a hedge. It's just not reacting in the way that it used to, to irresponsible monetary policy. And so um, one of the things I like to, to say to kind of um, uh, describe how we should think about this in terms of protecting our own wealth and our assets is that we really have to invest in assets that are growing at a pace that's faster than real inflation. Uh, the reality is, is that when we have seven and a half, eight percent inflation and the average bank account is only yielding, um, you know, less than a fraction of a percent, um, then we have negative real interest rates, which means if we leave cash in the bank, basically the government is effectively confiscating you know, seven, seven and a half percent of our wealth or of our cash savings annually. And so th that's not a safe, <laughs> that's not a safe place for our assets. Um, so industries that are growing at a pace that's much faster than uh, the rate of inflation, companies, of course, that are best in breed in those sectors are always good places uh, to invest. Um, certainly hard assets uh, in a market like this when the U.S. dollar is being so aggressively devalued, um, investing in commodities that have high levels of utility and demand in the marketplace is always smart. Um, things like timberland uh, agricultural land are becoming a lot more attractive, especially for any um, individuals that have access to, for example, put in place a, 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 a fixed loan uh, uh, to purchase that uh, property you know, a 30-year fixed loan or a 20-year fixed loan is, is the greatest hedge that you can have against irresponsible monetary policy because you're paying back that loan with, with uh, devalued dollars. 
um, at the same nominal rate. And so that's always, always smart. And there are also um, a handful of very high-quality digital assets um, that uh, can be a good hedge against uh, this. Eventually, in time, um, uh, these uh, digital assets will will diverge from uh, equities and, in fact, be a, a, a much safer uh, and higher growth um, uh, hedge against um, against a, a devalued uh, U.S. dollar. Uh, so, uh, do you think that there is perhaps a way to awaken people to some of the just connect some of these to the Great Reset? And is there a way that we can push back against it, uh, perhaps as a silver lining to some of the fact that we're so exposed financially now, given where we are, and allowing some of these oligarchs globally to control. Uh, so much of our kitchen table economic issues, which we've we've done, do you feel a movement perhaps to push back against it, or do you think that things are just going to get more painful before they get better? Well, they'll certainly get more painful until we have the midterm elections, right? Um, you, you know, I, I, in in terms of awareness, uh, I, you know, to use your word, a silver lining. The, the, the immediate impact of, of these egregious policies is so visible to everyone every day. You know, it's not just our gas prices. It's literally our electricity prices. It's our cost for natural gas. It's our cost for heating oil. Um, certainly, the food prices have been soaring, and yet the amount of food that we're getting uh, for what we're spending is even less than it's been before a dinner out for a family of four is ridiculous now, even compared to two or three years ago, it's crazy. Uh, and, and so it's so, it's so visceral. Um, we can see it everywhere. And we, uh, and because the feedback loop was so short, we can see that it's a result of these, uh, of these policies. And so I think we are empowered as citizens to make, um, uh, a choice uh, in the upcoming midterm elections, and then uh, you know once again in, in 2024. So, yeah, I I am encouraged by um, <laughs> oddly enough how bad uh, things have become so quickly, uh, because I'm hoping I believe that that will be a catalyst for um, uh, for change over the course of uh, of the next um, 24 to 36 months. What do you make of the fact that it seems like some coronavirus restrictions are leaving despite the fact that the coronavirus is still pretty bad and it's probably going to come back? If you look at the numbers of cases and deaths, it's still high. Uh, and the government's still asking for emergency funds for coronavirus. But then also they're doing stuff like they're opening our borders, which is insane to me, but they're but they're still doing that. Uh, and masks are mostly off. Um, mandates are mostly off in most parts of the United States, at least. It seems like people are a little bit fed up with the coronavirus controls, but it, maybe it's just a political calibration. What's your analysis of this? I, I believe it's entirely, entirely political. Um, that they're, they're, you know, the reality was, um, I think we can, we can, we can forgive, or at least from my perspective, uh, forgive the the population back in. In 2020, um, for most people, this was new. Um, 
Most people don't have time to read scientific research and to actually understand what was going on. We were all fed very false, uh, incorrect information about, um, you know, what these mRNA um, shots were and were not. Um, we were uh, intentionally made to be fearful, to panic. We were fed uh, incorrect information. And so uh, naturally, uh, the population re reacted accordingly. But, you know, especially when Omicron came, um, everyone realized, everyone realized, or I should say almost everyone, uh, recognized a couple obvious things. One was um, the use of our masks did not in any way stop or impede the spread of the virus. They didn't stop us from catching it. Um, and the vaccines, which we were told would stop us from catching COVID-19, did not do that. And we were told that they would stop us from transmitting it to other people. And that wasn't true either. <laughs> people that got the shots still caught COVID-19 and still transmitted it. They still carried viral loads just as heavy as someone that was unvaccinated, and they gave it to other people. It's just the nature of uh, these medicines that they've created. They're not designed to provide sterilizing immunity, um, which is the kind of immunity we get when we take a tuberculosis shot or vaccine or a polio vaccine. Those actually make us immune. We will not catch it again. So, 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 but, but here, but here's where I want to go with this because I think that that even those who see the vaccine as something that stops severe COVID, it, it was totally lie. We were lied to about what it does. We were lied to about the mask constantly. Uh, do you think this does lead to a backlash from the? Uh, the, the, the the Davos crowd, which could be a really big thing, and it could be a thing that could change the way uh, the world uh, operates financially if we are able to kind of put our money where our mouth is, literally. Well, the, the, you know, that, that's where I was leading in the sense that um, because we've recognized this, um, we are effectively demanding that these restrictions be lifted. Um, you know, we, we have had to accept that all of the pain and sacrifice and discomfort that we've experienced over the last two years did not produce the results that we had all hoped for, by the way, and uh, that we want to return back to some semblance of a normal life. Um, I, you know, I don't think that the Davos crowd or the World Economic Forum or even our own uh, CDC or NIH will admit um, that they were wrong and that they failed. Um, which is what they should do to restore confidence and trust with these uh, public health institutions. But I don't think that will happen. Um, there's, too, there's too much, and I know you've done a lot of work in this space, there's just too much desire to have control um, over the population. Yeah. And um, right. this, right? So Jeff Brown again is with me, founder and chief chief investment analyst for Brownstone Research. Again, the website's brownstoneresearch.com and Jeff Brown Reset. Uh, I'm sorry, brownstoneresearch.com and jeffbrownreset.com for his presentation on the Great Reset, which is uh, I can't miss in my opinion. Jeff, the, the last one for today is uh, sort of short to medium term. 
what do you see as people, I think, continue to wrap their mind around what's happening globally in terms of the push for control from these uh, or these aristocratic oligarchic elites? Uh, what do we do on a personal level? What are your recommendations for people right now? Well, you know, one of the hardest things to do is, um, uh, and this is true for me as a really a, a full-time um, analyst, is really to find information sources that um, that we can trust, uh, 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 sources that are capable of um, openly sharing uh, information, um, being objective, uh, resistance to censorship. Um, and don't ban uh, people, individuals, for their uh, opinions. Um, it takes a lot of effort, but as individuals, we have to seek out um, these types of uh, balanced uh, information resources that aren't scared to, to share the truth about um, what's going on. Um, I can tell you that in the tech space, there is uh, an amazing amount of effort, time, money being invested um, to build platforms and technologies that will enable normal people, normal consumers um, to be able to transact in ways that they are not um, controlled or monitored by any government. Uh, it's going to take time, but I can tell you it is being built. There's definitely cause for, um, for optimism in this regard. Uh, the latest development at, um, uh, uh, at, at Twitter, I, I see actually as being very positive. It's um, an unusual move. Elon Musk buying about 9.2% of the company and taking a board seat. Uh, he's largely been, um, uh, you know, philosophically a libertarian and um, absolutely supportive of uh, freedom of speech and um, not censoring and banning uh, individuals for their thoughts and their research and their opinions. Um, and uh, this could be a very good outcome um, for a social media platform that uh, largely contributed to the fear and panic that we experienced throughout the throughout the pandemic. So um, uh, this is one of the most encouraging things that I've seen happen over the last uh, last couple of years. Well, I hope you're right about that, Jeff, and I appreciate the time. And uh, let's check in more often. Great. Thank you, Alex. As you all know, we have a live show at 6 a.m. every morning for three hours on Sirius XM 125, the Patriot Channel. And I opened up a discussion about Elon Musk and whether or not he can fix Twitter. And in fact, I postulated that if he does fix Twitter, it's actually a bigger accomplishment in some ways than his electric cars, which again, we had electric cars and I guess his are cool and some people like them, but I think fighting for free speech online is a more noble cause. And if he's able to make progress, which of course I'm very skeptical he will, but it would be a huge accomplishment if he's able to do this. And this brought up a whole discussion of electric cars and Steve in Florida called in to talk about electric cars are actually unsustainable for green energy enthusiasts in some ways because of how much uh, you need to put into the creation of 
the batteries and the products themselves and the waste they produce. And we have not fully thought this through, not to mention all the charging stations that are necessary. Uh, we're very much in the early stages of this process of moving away from the combustion engine, which I love, towards electric cars. And I don't know if we're going to get all the way there, but if we are, we certainly haven't made nearly as much progress as some in the green movement would like. Anyway, I'm going way too far into it. Let's just hear the call. Stephen Florida is our call of the day. So on the electric car uh, uh, situation, you know, I, I, you were saying how you love, you know, internal combustion engines and you think that's going to be here for a long time. And obviously, you know, the internal combustion engine really isn't going anywhere. And anybody who thinks so is naive. Um, Lee Iacocca had stated that back in the 80s when they asked him how long did they think that internal combustion vehicles had. And Iacocca said probably another 100 years. And wow. you know, the man was not stupid in any respect. He knew his, he knew no. his product. He knew his, 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 um, his vehicles. But what people need to do is every time they go into a kitchen, every time they sit on their sofa, every time they grab the steering wheel of their car, they have to think petroleum because yes. there's nothing in this world that you do not touch, including medical equipment and, and surgery that is not affected by petroleum. Therefore, the, the narrative is so false that we're going to be off petroleum and we're going to be carbon zero by the year 2035. Maybe we should increase that by another 240 years. I don't think we'll ever be carbon zero, especially when it comes to petroleum. Uh, and Steve, well, why would we even pursue that when we're just going to get lapped by the rest of the world? I mean, look at what's happening with the fact that we don't have our own. We're not drilling our own oil. So what are we doing? We're, we're now, we want regimes that we don't like as much who don't have, America has uniquely pure oil. It's much easier to refine our oil than uh, other countries' oil. And we're asking those countries to produce the oil, which is hard to refine it because we won't get our own stuff. So it's the, we're going to get crushed at this current rate with the way we're dealing with this stuff. And again, I don't want to totally besmirch Tesla, even though I'm not a Tesla fan and, and there is a uh, it, there is a cult-like status to the stock and there's a cult-like status to the cars. I've driven a lot of Teslas for a, a, a while because I've got a uh, family member who has one and I borrow his car sometimes. And they're very fast and they have a huge screen that looks like an iPad, which is a pretty interesting gimmick. But that's about it. It's a, it's a big piece of tech, Steve. It's not a, the, I don't, I know it's a become a sort of pop culture thing that people like these cars, but I just don't look at this stuff as Musk is some sort of incredible genius because he set a rocket in space for 11 minutes and then has a, a car that's electric car that people are into. It's just that to me, it's fine. It's something, it's big, but I think what would be bigger if he could restore free speech on the internet, that would be a bigger thing. That's what I'm trying to push him to do. Well, you know, that's, that's well said. And Tesla is a great company. Don't get me wrong. However, don't forget, Tesla was not the first. And the only reason why yeah, Tesla is even right. existing today is because Obama gave him $65 billion under the table. And a lot of people don't even realize that. Eon is not, a, is not an idiot. He has taken money from both sides of the table, and he's yeah, taken money right. from China, and he's taken money from everywhere. So he's, he, you know, he's, a, he's a financial genius is what he is. But you know, getting back to the electric vehicle, electric vehicles do have a place in the society without a doubt. However, you can't force a narrative on people to shove, to shove it over and make the transition in 20 years. It's just not going to happen. It's going to have to be an evolution. And they're great, and, and they are great vehicles. However, every time you go, to, you, know, you go to sit inside an electric vehicle, think of one thing. Look at your Dell computer. 
and ask yourself, how many years does my Dell computer have when I buy it? It used to be that they had about five years or eight years worth of service. And today a Dell computer has about three years worth of service. So when you get in that electric vehicle, I want you to think about the same thing. You know, that, that vehicle is only going to have so many years worth of service, especially in all the elements and everything that, that a regular car goes through. And they're not going to be performance-wise in the dirt, and they're not going to be performance-wise on the trail. So as much as people want to think that they're going to be uh, the savior to, to whatever environmental crisis they think we're having, which we really are not, you know, people need to really wake up. And it's, it's the young people who just don't understand. Maybe everybody should get a copy of Popular Science and Popular Mechanics and start reading and actually learn about the product that they're, gonna, that they're pushing for, that they have no clue, you know, what it's going to cost to sustain it. I'm also curious where is, what's going to happen when some of these uh, Teslas are uh, going to age out and what we're going to do with the batteries, which is the Greens used to care about this stuff, and I don't know what, what we're going to do now. I, I don't think they're going to be easy to recycle or to get rid of. Uh, Steve, are, are, it seems like you know more about stuff than, than I do. Have you thought about that? Well, I, I read up, you know, and I'm, a, and I'm a shade tree mechanic, and I, and I do know a lot about mechanics and, and automobiles and, and motorcycles and things like that. I've been working on engines since I was 12 years old. Um, you know, while most kids were playing football and baseball and, and trying to get that letter for school, I was in my garage almost 24-7, you know, rebuilding cars and racing motorcycles. So, yeah, I do have a little bit of mechanical knowledge. Um, but, you know, that being said... You know, what people don't understand is, is ignorance is their worst enemy. If they don't educate themselves on why they're going to push for something and why they think something is so great, you know, they're, 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 they're being misled. And I don't want to take away anything from Tesla because I think Tesla is a great company. I think, I think SpaceX is a fantastic company. I think Musk has got a place uh, in, in, in our society to actually correct a lot of bills that we have that are going on. But at the same time, you have to be prag- you have to be a pragmatist and you have to have to be practical. And, um, you know, what people don't understand is, yes, the battery situation will be a, will be a problem. But then again, so is nuclear waste. And um, yeah, you know, no, I, I, I agree. But I, and the nuclear waste, this is the part of the issue. And see, we got to take a break. But the uh, the one of the issues with nuclear waste is that. Um, the left complained about the nuclear waste. So are they going to complain about the electric car batteries? This, I'm not saying it's exactly the same, but it's uh, it's a question because they seem to only care about waste when it's convenient to their narrative. And their narrative was uh, that nuclear waste was the, the the Satan incarnate, which, of course, is not. I mean, France is, I think, 70 percent nuclear power seems to be doing fine and arguably doing better in moments like this. American Thanks a lot to producers Haley and Greg Eben for making the show. Both the live show and the podcast sound so good. And thanks to all of you who've shared our content. The only way we grow and it's all thanks to you. Great word of mouth. It means a lot. Five-star reviews, et cetera, et cetera. Brightport.com all day, every day for the headlines. And thanks for listening. Shine.